Hello, and welcome to Eagle Alpha's Profiting from Data podcast. Our podcast series focuses on the most important topics in alternative data with industry-leading experts as featured guests. Your hosts are Eagle Alpha subject matter thought leaders who lead these lively and informative discussions. Please enjoy this and all episodes of Profiting from Data. Thanks for having us. As always, we value another year of our collaboration with the folks at Eagle Alpha and look forward to 2024. So, Ben, I think the best place for us to start is OpenAI and all the questions we started getting really at the end of last year, but it certainly continued into this year of, hey, what does this mean? How do we use it? What does it mean for compliance? So I don't know, Ben, if you want to just start with some thoughts and you and I can bounce back and forth a little bit on the questions we've been getting from clients and where we think the market has landed with respect, at least so far, to the use of AI. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Yeah, thanks, Peter. That's a good question. So the market is still evolving in terms of participants' use of AI. And there are different versions of AI that people are testing, adopting within their firms or within their investment processes. There obviously are a number of considerations, everything from as basic as, you know, is AI just going to be completely supplant the work of the investment team, which nobody thinks it will be? To, you know, am I going to use Microsoft Copilot and have their AI tool so that my data is better organized and not just the data from data vendors, but the data that the firm is creating internally in terms of helping it make investment decisions? And I think that kind of like the, one of the key issues that folks are struggling with is where's the information coming from when it comes to the results coming out of AI? And are these results accurate? Or are they false positives or what people call in AI hallucinations of things that actually are not real? And so that's the struggle. I think there's very, you know, people's policies and procedures are still evolving in terms of using AI. I think the most common one we see is that people need to get compliance pre-approval almost universally before they go using AI, particularly as it relates to using it for investment purposes. But that's kind of the high level, Peter. I don't know if you want to add on anything there, but that's kind of where I see things at this point in the market. Yeah, so I agree with you, and Ben and I certainly have an overlapping client base, but not coterminous. So seeing the same sorts of questions, a couple of points to dive in a little deeper on. One is what you let your team put in as an input, and whether that's your confidential information, how comfortable you are with that. So getting a lot of questions from clients, you know, should we ban people from putting any of our information, whether it's firm information or fund information, into any of these models or programs? And I think I don't know, Ben, what you've seen, but some clients have and some clients have not. But it's something you need to instruct your folks on so that there is a policy, right? Just like anything else that we always talk about, right? The staff of the SEC wants to see policies and procedures. And Gensler is seeing AI as potential Armageddon, if you read some of his quotes. And so what he's saying is, hey, it's really important because if everyone starts using these programs and models together and everyone does the same thing. You're going to see herd investing. Everyone's going to be investing in the same thing. Humans are going to become irrelevant and that has potential for market instability and price runs. Now, there's a lot of ifs in there and and a lot of Armageddon type thought in there, but put that to the side, it shows you what he's thinking. And so if he's thinking that, it does mean that trickles down to pretty quickly trickles down to the examination staff when they come in and they look at your policies and procedures. So you need to put together a comprehensive policy and set of procedures around your firm's use of open AI. Now, one part of that, which is where I got off track here a little bit, but one part of that, Ben, is this concept of what do you let people put into open AI? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so it's somewhat of an issue of, of what form of AI you're using. And are you using you know, a proprietary enterprise version that you've purchased and implemented into your network infrastructure? Or are you using just the publicly available version of ChatGPT or some other AI tool that's publicly available to anyone using it? I think the general consensus so far is that if you're just using a public version of AI, most managers do not want their teams putting in anything highly proprietary into that to try and get the results. But if folks have implemented an encapsulated version of an AI tool for their team, they are allowing some of the stuff to go in. But I still think there's a lot of unknowns as to how actually protective it is. And if it's really, truly in a bubble, people have to do a lot of diligence to get comfortable with that before they start putting in a lot of confidential private information, especially as it relates to fiduciary duty type of issues and considerations that Gensler seems to be alluding to in some of his commentary. I mean, in some sense, it's the same as the staff's analysis always is, right? New technology, same questions, just new technology. It's analogous to staff saying, hey, should it be okay for you to share just on the telephone with someone who works at another fund, the positions and our trading plans of your fund? And the answer to that is you need to consider your fiduciary duty and decide whether that sharing is in the best interest of your investors. There's a case at certain times when it is credible case that it is in the best interest of your investors to share. You're in an ecosystem. You receive information back. When you share your own information, that information you receive back makes you a better investor overall, thereby, the argument goes, honoring your fiduciary duty. There are some times when, of course, sharing is bad because you're not getting anything back from that ecosystem, so to speak, and by sharing or thereby harming your investors. Same thing here. Ben's right. I think the lion's share of folks with whom we as a firm have spoken are not allowing their employees, their investment team, their non-investment team, to put into open AI, public architecture, proprietary or even close to proprietary information about their firms or their funds. And so I think that's where that's landed. So then the next piece that I wanted to just unpack, and I think we might've talked about this before, and it's, I think, relatively straightforward, but we should do it. Ben and I do a lot of insider trading training, and we always try to come up with neat hypotheticals to discuss to get our clients' teams thinking about what might constitute material non-public information and how you think about it. Not to make them lawyers, but just to make them know when to raise their hand to their legal and compliance staffs with respect to information they might have come into contact with that is troubling. So then the question is, you put a question into one of these models to OpenAI, ChatGPT rather, and you get back an answer that seems like it might have information about a public or private, but let's go with a public company you cover and that that information about that public company does not seem to be information you've ever seen in the public domain before. So let's sort of take the worst case, you know, it's a bit of a hyperbolic example, but I think it makes the point. Let's say there's some guy, he's the CFO at a public company, and he puts into ChatGPT the earnings for the quarter for his public company that haven't come out yet. He's a rogue employee. He does something, of course, that he shouldn't do. So earnings are going to be released in two weeks or a week. And he puts in those earnings numbers into ChatGPT. And you work at a fund and you happen to put in the right words into ChatGPT that yields those earnings. Now, first of all, obviously, you wouldn't know whether they're reliable or not. But let's say they are reliable. And you say, boy, these seem reliable. They're close to forecasts out there, to consensus but they're a little bit off. Boy, I think they're reliable. Can you then go ahead and trade while you're in possession of those earnings figures before the rest of the market? Yeah, that's like, it's a really interesting question. And the answer is where did the information come from when you're dealing with ChatGPT response? 
Yep. And right now, the interesting thing about ChatGPT is that probably is not a realistic hypothetical, just in all due candor, just because of course. I think the information stops at like 2021. So everything is probably pretty stale in the current version of ChatGPT. But as things evolve, it's a really good question. What are you supposed to do? Look, the whole idea is that ChatGPT is pulling, I guess there's two parts to answer that question. How do you know that that's a credible result? Right. And is that some hallucination that some kind of artificial intelligence that's two hallucinations from you today. It's twice, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's twice. what they call it. Like that it gleaned from something it saw somewhere else within the system. Or is it somebody put that information onto the internet and chat GPT and formulating its response, grabbed that information and provided it to you? Now, if it's the latter situation where it was in the internet, it was public, and had you been more diligent in doing internet research and you may have found that thing, on the internet, but you didn't because it was hidden in some dark corner, not necessarily the dark web, but just somewhere in a web page that you may not have seen through your normal research, that's public information. And so that would not result in any issues. The more troubling one actually for using the kind of AI tools, and it relates to the prior conversation we were just having is, what if that's totally false? And you then go ahead and trade on it. And then you made a bad decision. And it turned out that that was just something that the system was able to just try and make a conclusion about. That was erroneous. But to answer your question, I don't know that you de facto have any insider trading issues per se, Peter, just because if you're using a public version of the chat GPT software currently. Yeah, so I think that's the right answer too. In that sense, it's like Google in that it's public. And in the United States, just real quick refresher, in the United States, for something to be public, it doesn't mean everyone needs to have actually seen the information. They just need to have access and could see the information if they did the work, right? We still reward the person who works harder, reads more, sees more, unearths more from public sources. So if this is the public version of ChatGPT and it spits out this information, I think there'd be consensus around the fact that that's public information. Now, Ben, of course, makes a good point. And it's a point you'd make with respect to any information you get, whether it's from the internet, from management, from an expert network consultant. You have to decide what the credibility of the information is and how credible it is, and what you think your firm should do in terms of relying on it, right? How much should they rely on it? Is it true? Is it not true? You always have to do that. I agree. You have to do it here. But we did get that a little bit at the beginning with ChatGPT around, hey, like I'm seeing stuff on here. Is it okay? Yeah, it's okay. It's the public version of ChatGPT. It's okay. Maybe you put in a better question or a different question than everyone else out there. So you got different information, but that's okay. So Delana, I don't know if there's anything else you're thinking of for OpenAI that you want us to talk about, but the important takeaways for us are you need to have policies and procedures at your firm for how you're going to allow your employees to interact with chat GPT and the like. Look, that's just really important. And if you haven't done that yet, you should be working with your compliance consultants and or your lawyers and our folks internally, just like social media usage. You know, anything that's new that's out there from a technology perspective, you need to figure out what's your policy going to be. Then you need to write it and then you need to roll it out and then you need to train people. Yeah, so I think you covered everything there. And Jessica joined us last month to discuss that topic in particular and got into the weeds on DDQs, into contracting, into vendor usage as well. But yeah, as you mentioned, like, you know, the SEC's focus on it is like the same as any new technology that comes in. Processes and procedures are super important. And of course, this is also developing as well. But I know you did mention open AI a lot in particular, but what about obviously everything that's happened very recently regards to their board and management uh, and concentration risk. I'm not sure if there's any perspective or point you have on that before we move on to the next topic. Nothing. I think we kind of covered the key issues that people need to think about. I don't We could dive into particulars if people have questions, but I think we're good on the, I agree. Uh, the overview. Okay. I agree. Thanks.
So next in terms of topical is geopolitical risk, data regulation. Look, we still have this patchwork, not only in the United States, but all over the world with respect to data security and data regulation, China, Russia, the Middle East. We continue to get questions from clients around cross-border transfers and also just use of data in the United States and how we think about it. Ben, anything you want to kick off on there for us? Otherwise, I would. No, I mean, I think as you go outside the U.S. and you're looking at data from outside the U.S. and particularly in some countries that become more sensitive to data. I mean, China is a great example of some place that's really become sensitive about their data. You need to become really, especially if you're a U.S.-based manager, you need to be acutely aware of the issues that you are going to need to think through and understand before you just go blindly buy data sets from China. Because China has implemented, not to pick on them, but they've implemented some really, really robust in the last two years, privacy and national security rules relating to exporting of data. So before you go buy a data set from a vendor over there, you'd want to go and really have a thorough due diligence process. And local counsel is critical to that review. Agreed. We work with, and most of you have probably already found, some really good firms who are China-based but have offices in the U.S. And look, you need to have your New York-based counsel can't advise you, really shouldn't advise you on laws in China, Middle East, Russia. You need local counsel in those areas. And the law firms with whom you work, I'm sure, have contacts in those areas. And so you should be thinking about that. Again, just to touch on, look, we hope eventually in the United States, we get some consistency across states. Maybe we get some federal regulation that's really clear as to how data privacy works. But geolocation data in the U.S. continues to be something that you need to think about and be concerned about. And if you're using geolocation data, you need to be very careful with your data provenance, as we always talk about, to make sure that the vendor from whom you're buying that data has the right to share that data with you. And this is an important ad for the purpose for which you want to use it. We've seen a little bit of pushback lately on that point. I think it's really important. Sometimes maybe you can do without it, but I think it's really important to get a rep from the provider of the data that not only do they have the consent to share the data with you, but to add to that thought, have the consent to share the data with you for the purpose for which you want to use it, right? We're going to trade stocks on the basis of this data, combining it with other data, of course, but on the basis of this data. And you, vendor, need to be able to share the data with us. You're allowed to sell it to us, and you're allowed to sell it to us for this purpose. We've got a little bit of pushback on that lately in one or two instances, and I think it's something that's pretty important to stand your ground on, absent in an extraordinary circumstance. One of the things we learned this year from the staff is when you deviate from your list of wants, like in other words, if you give on the point I just made, when you deviate from your list of wants in negotiating an agreement with a data vendor, Adam Storch, who runs the SEC's effort in this regard on data, he said, I want you to document that, explain why you did it. So in other words, it's not fatal that you did it. It's okay, you have a set of policies and procedures. There are going to be exceptions that you make in given circumstances if your due diligence is otherwise really strong and credible and unearths no red flags. Maybe there's a provision that you get in 90% of your, 95% of your data agreements and you don't get it in one. That's okay. But write down contemporaneously. And he made this point on a couple panels we did with him. And so it means the staff is going to look at this. And Jen Duggins from exams was there when Adam made this point. And if you're going to make an exception, write down why you made the exception. If you consulted with counsel, you don't want to put counsel's advice in there, but you can say you consulted with counsel, you know, in certain circumstances and why you made the exception and do it in real time. That's important to the staff. Ben, anything you want to add there? No, that's spot on. It is Robust processes, we've emphasized this all the time. It's become more and more important. 
And that applies to firms that use 250 data vendors to firms that use two. There's an expectation now from the commission as to what they expect to see when they come in and review the alternative data. And it starts with your policy. Is it adequate for what you're doing inside your firm and the way you're using alternative data? And do you have supporting information to show how you became comfortable with that vendor? And then continuing the ongoing monitoring of these vendors. It's not a one and done thing anymore. You know, it's not like, okay, put a diligence file together and call it a day and then never look at them again. There's an expectation by the staff that you are reviewing on a regular basis. And that usually means just once a year that no material changes have occurred with the vendors that you're using so that you can have an update in your file that shows that you've taken those steps to ensure ongoing compliance. And look, we have a lot of clients who use red, yellow, green, right, to triage. And if something's red and it's a concerning vendor on the way in and you maybe just got comfortable, well, that's one to review more often, six months or a year. And if it's green and it's pretty simple and it's very clearly from public sources, then maybe review that one every two years. But again, have a policy, have a procedure. It needs to be tailored to your resources, right? Some firms are smaller. They've got a two-person compliance department. Some have 20. Well, the 20 can diligence and re-underwrite the vendors more often than the two. So just have a policy and procedure that fits, that you're going to be able to comply with. That's really important. So a couple other things I wanted to talk about just on sort of the more core data side, Ben, are you want to take web scraping and I'll take sensor tower. Yeah. So on web scraping, it's becoming a much more clear understanding in the market about web scraping. And start off by saying you can't do indirectly what you can't do directly, right? And what we mean by that is you can't go hire somebody to violate all the terms of service, put in usernames and passwords, collect all the data you want. If you weren't allowed to do that, by doing it directly by yourself, you have the capability to do it. However, web scraping has become a less risky endeavor from our perspective, from the point of view of a material non-public information claim. There are, as the court noted in LinkedIn and HiQ, and we're seeing some cases unrelated to hedge fund and investment industry, maybe with copyright violations or people issuing cease and desist letters. But for the most part, the crux of it is that there is information that's available on an internet site, and all you need is a browser, an internet connection to get it. That's public information. So if that's the case. And based on what Peter's comments were, just a refresher on how you make insider trading claim, you can't have insider trading on public information. And so with respect to web scraping, I think the key is when you're diligencing vendors, making sure that you understand how they go about their processes. Almost every website out there says, don't scrape our website, or you're not permitted to scrape our website, or can't use robot.txt, you know, or other means of evading our technological restrictions. That is all true, but the information on the internet that you're getting, as long as you're not logging into something, as long as you're not using an authentication gateway, is fine. There comes up questions about rotating IP addresses and things of that nature. Could it be deceptive? There are arguments about that. I think the largely the consensus view is that still is not creating MMPI issues because the information you're collecting, at least in one major court view, it's the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in the United States, says that just generally, as I mentioned, information on publicly available internet is public information. Agreed. Okay. Thanks for that. Helpful. So next is Apptopia. So we all remember, I'll just do a very quick refresher, what happened to App Annie, which is more than two years ago, I now I believe, so it would have been, I think, September 21. App Annie sort of the first shot across the bow from the SEC in the data space, but the SEC did not go after any hedge funds for buying App Annie's data, now called Data AI, by the way, they've rebranded themselves, but rather just went after App Annie and some of its officers for misrepresenting to the companies who shared data with App Annie what App Annie would do with that data. And 
it was a shot across the bow that the SEC clearly was starting to look at data. And it's one of the things we're going to talk about at the end in terms of the SEC's priorities and where data falls. But Sensor Tower and Aptopia and App Annie are the players in that space. So App Annie took the first shot, but after that, Sensor Tower was examined. And we knew Sensor Tower would be examined, and we advised all our clients at that time, you need to re-underwrite your diligence, not only of App Annie, because they just got massively sanctioned by the staff, by the SEC, but also you need to re-underwrite Sensor Tower because it's a very similar product. Sensor Tower, for us, historically, from a diligence perspective, had usually been clean, and Sensor Tower let people know that they were being investigated. That investigation went on, I believe, for two years. And Sensor Tower came out of that investigation a short time ago, and they passed their exam, so to speak, from the staff. And obviously, that's a real big seal of approval for Sensor Tower. And really, data provenance was key to passing that exam and was key to what App Annie was doing. And it's just the most important part of this. And Ben and I have been preaching it for all these years, as much as it's unfortunate to see some people get in trouble. In some sense, it's validating in that the staff really does care about how you get comfortable with the data provenance. That is every link in the chain from the original owner or creator of the data, if it's credit card data, Ben's transaction data on his individual transaction level, line item detail, on his purchases, on his credit card. And it's just super important when you're diligencing anyone, and Sensor Tower is a good example, to make sure that the app data you are buying, the data provenance is clean. And what we mean by that is the people who use the apps, just regular everyday people like us who use the apps and generate the data that goes into the panel of data you buy from someone like Sensor Tower have given permission to the owner of the app to take that data, de-identify it, anonymize it, sell it on to somebody who maybe sells it on to somebody who eventually sells it on to, or maybe they sell it directly from the app owner to an app Annie or a sensor tower. Let's keep on sensor tower. And then sensor tower can repackage that, cut it, slice it, repackage it in a way that's useful for a hedge fund and sell it onto a hedge fund. And you need to make sure that there's a permission there. And you need to make sure that sensor tower, which they do now, and they always did, or at least for a while, gives a rep in its agreement with you that what I said before, they're allowed to sell the data onto you for the purpose for which you want to use it. And the fact that Sensor Tower got a clean bill of health is really good for the app data community. Apptopia was always, Ben understands this maybe a bit better than I do. Apptopia was always cleaner from a diligence perspective. In other words, easier to get there from a diligence perspective, I should say, than Sensor Tower and Data AI. But it's really important that Sensor Tower came out clean. I think that's a big step. Let's say one thing about that clean before Ben talks about Aptopia. Just because we've heard in the news, and I want to make sure Ben agrees with me on this, just because we've heard in the news or the marketplace that, hey, Sensor Tower is clean. Ben, does that mean that now, well, we don't need to diligence them? Hey, they just got a clean bill of health from the SEC, so we don't need to do as much on our front end when we're considering buying Sensor Tower data? Absolutely not. I mean, the expectation from the staff when they examine you is you're going to have the same level of diligent file on Sensor Tower as you do on any other data vendor that you have. You're going to have you know, a write-up, a call, contract, the whole nine yards. So there's no chance that that's going to happen. In terms of like Aptopia, look, I mean, the products are all a little bit different as to whether they track number of app downloads or how many <clears throat> users are on the app, all that stuff. You know, what App Annie was doing, App Annie got in trouble you know, let's just be reminded, Peter. I mean, he got in trouble because they were lying. Or at least that uh, was no question. In, in the no question. To what they were doing with the data of people 
that they were using for their input. In other words, they were lying to just so we're clear that like they were lying to Starbucks. I don't mean to pick on Starbucks. Correct. But they were yeah, lying they to were Starbucks lying for, when they right. right. Okay. Yeah, they weren't lying this and indirectly then lying to correct. purchasers of their data sets because and that's why they were accused of kind of the fraud that they were accused of. I think the what we're seeing as a result of that, Annie, and why we've got more comfortable is the amount of transparency that the data vendors are now willing to provide as to how they're obtaining their data. They're not giving away necessarily the secret sauce or all their contracts and what the terms and all the pricing and the duration. That's proprietary. They should be able to run their businesses. But they are very, very conscious and understanding of the issues faced by their purchasers of their data. And that in many cases, and like an app at Data AI or Sensor Tower that are at an Aptopia, they're looking you know, to sell a lot of this stuff at very high prices to investment firms. They may also sell it to other industry, you know, kind of normal industry participants, whether that's another corporate buyer that may not have these same issues, but they are acutely aware of the issues now that are faced by investment firms and they charge very high prices to those investment firms. So they know that if they're not transparent, if they can't explain where they get their information as though they were talking to like a fifth grader, they're not going to be able to sell that data into the investment the fund market. And so I think that that's been the primary change. And the app any case just really highlighted for all these folks, you can't lie, you can't cheat, you got to be transparent. And the more you open up about how you're obtaining this stuff, the more business you're going to get. Yeah. And the only thing I'd add to that before we move on to SEC priorities and wrap up is what Ben said is right. The diligence process is easier. Maybe for new vendors that come online, it's, it's not as easy. But the questions we're asking now, everyone understands why you're asking them. Everyone understands why you need the DDQ, because they've seen that the SEC has said, hey, we really care about this. We sanctioned that, Annie. It's a priority for us. So now let's move to priority. Ben, a lot's been made of the fact that, hey, the staff hasn't hammered home for 2024 that data is as much of a priority for it. Does that give you some comfort? No. It was not in the exam priorities with Peter's <clears throat> suggesting. You know, every year... One thing that's great about the SEC, no matter who's at the helm of the SEC, is they've always been a very transparent regulator, especially as it relates to the private funds industry, but even more broadly to the whole market. They'll tell you what they're going to be looking at or where they want to be focusing on when it comes to exams. That does not mean that's all they're focusing on when it comes to exams, and I'm going to be very clear about that. So this year, they did not, unlike last year, highlight that alternative data and usage and diligence was, is part of the exams. So people are saying, oh, do I not need to worry about this stuff anymore? Of course not. If you come in and, you know, they're going to look at it, they're going to look at it as not just more part of their normal process in terms of an examination, as opposed to having to say, look, we really want to see how the industry is addressing this stuff now. I agree with that. I wouldn't let your guard down at all. I think they hammered it as a priority for a couple of years. And we know from on the ground exams from our regulatory and compliance team here at Schulte that data is a large part of almost every exam now. Hey, what data are you buying? Let's see your files. And then they'll test a handful of those to get comfortable that your diligence is robust, that your contract negotiation is hitting on the right points. And so I think the staff has seen, I hope, that, hey, as an industry, we're doing a better job with this. And maybe that's why it's not as high an exam priority. But just because it's not an exam priority does not mean that it will not be part of routine exams, right? There are plenty of things on that first request list that you get from the staff that are hey, here are the things that we need from you. Those are not listed as exam priorities, but they're now just part of the fabric of an SEC exam. And I think data is now the same. While it might not be an exam priority on that list because it's a limited list, it's just part of the regular exam process now. And so you better have a really good file, just to close with this, we always talk about this, a really good file, three parts, a DDQ, 
some memorialization of some diligence effort post receiving the DDQ, a phone call you had, for example, with compliance at the vendor and your write up of that phone call. And then an agreement between you and the vendor that has robust representations and warranties around, most importantly, data provenance, most important, and privacy. So we know we sound like a broken record for years, but hopefully the fact that we and many other lawyers, of course, have sounded like a broken record on this point, have made the industry more compliant and have gotten us to the point where it's not an exam priority this year, but it's just a routine part of every exam. Your files for your data vendors need to be up to speed. Ben, anything you want to add other than happy holidays to everybody? Look, I think data is still a critical part of it and becoming more and more, it seems, every year of people's investment processes. It is good to see that there is the industry groups, including Eagle Alpha and others who have helped the data community get up to speed on a lot of these issues. And it has, as Peter noted, from our direct experience, made the diligence process easier. Of course, there are still quite a few vendors out there that were not built, designed, or focusing on financial services, and your teams are looking to buy their data, that's when we see the diligence sometimes become more challenging. Because they're used to selling to, I don't know, you know, Walmart or selling Amazon data to this one or to another competitor to Best Buy. And they don't care about the sourcing as much. They care about privacy issues and other things, but not as much about the kind of the core compliance issues that we talk about a lot on these calls. And so when Peter says, keep your guard up, that's exactly right. Not mm-hmm. every vendor is on the same level yet. And the SEC is not going to let you off the hook just because they feel like the industry has gotten a little bit more up to speed on the compliance issues and the processes. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.